Our topic, our topic this morning is grace and peace, Christianity in a nutshell. But I want to start by asking you all, um, when you write a letter, and I know that's more and more rare these days, Maybe the letter is on paper. Maybe you're typing an email letter. But it used to be very common that people wrote letters to each other on paper, stuck them in an envelope and put a stamp on it and mailed them to each other. When you when you begin to write to somebody, do you use the um, the standard... Dear so-and-so, dear, dear Jody, dear, dear Gladys, dear Pia. And, uh, and if you were taught how to do it in school, you probably put a semicolon after the word or after the name that you were writing to. Dear so-and-so. And then at the end of your letter, you might write sincerely, or if you're writing to a loved one, you might sign off, love so-and-so, love your name. And actually, until they look at the back of the letter, they don't even know who wrote that. But that's pretty common. Other people have different ways to sign off, but it's a, it's kind of a salutation. And my question really for all of us is when you write, dear so-and-so, what does that mean to you? What does that word dear mean to you? If you're writing to a, a politician, if you're writing to your boss, if you're writing to whoever, what does dear mean to you? If you're like most of us, nothing. <laughs> it, it pretty much means nothing. It's just a common way to begin a letter. And if you write sincerely at the end, before you sign your name, are you saying that at other times when you write to them, you're not being sincere? I don't think so. I think it's just kind of a, that's a cultural norm that we have had. And yes, that's, it's dying away in this generation as people stop using paper and they stop using standard things like letter format, things that most of us were taught in grade school, but nowadays they aren't, they don't bother. But the thing is, do, do those words mean anything, you know, dear and sincerely and even love? Love so-and-so. 
Now, if you say that to the wrong person, that can be pretty awkward. You write it to your boss, and you say, love so-and-so. It's like, uh, it's a little awkward here. What are you saying here? But uh, <laughs> for the most part, we just use those as uh, cultural habits. Now, the apostles Paul and Peter and John in his second letter as well, they begin each of their letters with, first of all, with their, their own names. So right up front, they tell the people who are getting the letter who they are, who's writing to them. And I find that a very sensible way to begin a letter rather than to have somebody have to go and look at the back page or whatever to see who it is who's writing, unless you recognize the handwriting. But Paul and, and, and Peter and John, they begin each one of their letters with some variation of the greeting, grace and peace. Now, many of us have read these letters so many times that we have failed to consider why they might have done this. Unfortunately, even theologians and Bible commentators, they often just brush these greetings and salutations they just brush them off as not very important, kind of applying our situation to theirs 2,000 years ago, which I believe is a huge mistake. But they brush them off as not very important, saying that eh, it's just a common greeting of the day, it's similar to what all the Greeks used anyway, and, and then they'll move on. You've probably heard people teach that way. If they begin the book of Ephesians or Colossians or 2 Corinthians or 1 Peter, and, and they come across this grace and peace, you've heard teachers, as I have, just blow right past that. Say, yeah, well, that was kind of the cultural norm, you know, kind of like how they brush off the command for women to wear a head covering. They say, well, that was just a cultural norm. And the Bible doesn't say that, by the way, but um, they'll just toss it off as not meaning very much. But Paul and the other apostles Folks, they were brilliant men, and, and their letters show that. And however they'd begun as people, you know, I know a lot of us wouldn't say that Peter began as a brilliant man, but by the time he reached, he was well into his ministry decades after Christ had ascended decades after the Holy Spirit had filled and inspired him, I think we can say that he was brilliant. And if you read 
his two letters, um, you'll agree. You see, they'd been under the tutelage, being the tutor, tutored by the Holy Spirit for decades. So I personally cannot see these guys use grace and peace to you from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ, the phrase most common. I can't see them use these as throwaway terms, just stuff you use to start a letter. Nor can I see that they're just two semi-random Christianese terms that they chose to use when beginning their letters. I know that there's more going on here. Indeed, much more. For one, we have to remember who the author is of the Bible, the whole Bible. Every word, every phrase, every sentence, every chapter, including these letters. All of it, from Genesis to Revelation, it's God himself as the Holy Spirit who wrote the Bible. A couple of scriptures, they're familiar to you, but I'm going to read them. 2 Timothy 3.16 says, All scripture is given by inspiration of God. That means it's God-breathed. It comes out of the mouth of God. All scripture is given by inspiration of God and is profitable for doctrine, for reproof, for correction, for instruction in righteousness. That's pretty important. And then Peter, in his second letter. Now he's going to refer to a word prophetic. And I want you to understand that in a very real sense, because the entire Bible's inspired by God, the whole Bible is considered prophetic. He said in Second Peter chapter 1, verses 19 to 21, he said, And so we have the prophetic word confirmed, which you do well to heed as a light that shines in a dark place until the day dawns and the morning star rises in your hearts, knowing this first, that no prophecy of Scripture, that's the whole Bible, no prophecy of Scripture is of any private interpretation. That means you can't make out of it whatever you want. It has a meaning. And that meaning comes from God. So what does it mean? Ask God. No prophecy 
of Scripture is of any private interpretation, for prophecy never came by the will of man, but holy men of God spoke as they were moved by the Holy Spirit. So that's where the whole Bible comes from. Holy men of God being moved by the Holy Spirit. And I need to ask you, is the Holy Spirit likely to inspire these human writers to use throwaway words at the beginning of their letters? I'm going to answer that for you because the answer is no. No, the Holy Spirit's not into throwaways. And second, if we remember a principle that we've mentioned here a number of times, and you've heard a number of other times as you've read and you've heard Bible studies, that when we see in Scripture when God chooses to repeat himself, what does that mean? You all know the answer. If he repeats himself two or three times, we know that he does that for emphasis. Just like we do in regular speech ourselves. He does it for emphasis, as I just did to emphasize what he's saying, to, to make a point of the importance of what he's saying to the people who are receiving and reading the letter or hearing it read. And here, people, we see him repeat himself 18 times. 18 they're listed on that cross-reference sheet 18 times. Is that a mistake by the Holy Spirit? No, certainly not. With 18 repetitions, the Holy Spirit is loudly saying something important. In fact, I believe that grace and peace are two of those brilliant, wonderful terms that are used to summarize Christianity as a whole. That's why I titled this Christianity in a Nutshell. They're used to summarize what Christianity is. And I'm certain that Paul and Peter and John knew this very well. First, let's look at grace. We know that Paul and the early church were all about grace. Grace is the word that best summarizes the Christian gospel as a whole. We're saved by grace, which means we don't deserve it. 
nor can we earn it, nor should we try. In fact, instead, we deserve the opposite. We deserve damnation. But the gospel is that God in his mercy sent Christ so that sinners can be justified. They can be made right with God so that those who deserve to be separated from God, in other words, all of us, can instead be brought near to him, even intimately near to him. How many of us enjoy that privilege every day in our time of prayer with our Lord? So that those who are enemies of God may become his friends and his family. So that those who should face eternal punishment receive eternal life in the very family of God instead. All of that, folks, is ours not because of anything we've done, but all and entirely by God's grace, his grace. We receive something wonderful that we can never deserve. We can never earn it. I'll tell you, as somebody who was consciously, vehemently, even I'll say hatefully, an enemy of God for 20 years. Every time I consider these facts, I just shake my head. I look at the Lord and just break down with thanksgiving. Because as scripture says, while I was still a sinner, and not just a sinner, but an enemy of God, he died for me, and by his grace he saved me. Even more, Paul in Ephesians chapter 1 verse 6, he tells us that the whole creation and the forming of the world and the work of salvation is ultimately to, here's the quote, here's that verse, to the praise of the glory of his grace, of the grace of God. This means that all of history, all of salvation exists so that we may praise God so that we may glorify God, but even more specifically, so that we may glorify God for his grace. That's the ultimate goal of creation, of the universe. And it makes sense to us, doesn't it? We glorify him 
for his grace. What's the most beautiful, appealing reality in the universe? Well, I'm going to suggest it's not only a powerful, praise-deserving God. It's not even only a, a, a loving God, a, a God who is love. But the most beautiful, appealing reality in the universe is a powerful, praiseworthy, loving God who treats rebels better than they could have ever imagined, better than we could have ever imagined. Grace is what God designed us to love in him as human beings. Why? Because all of creation exists so that he could wonderfully display his grace. So, inspired by the Holy Spirit, the apostles begin their letters with grace. Then, because it is the essence of Christianity, they say, grace to you from God the Father. God the Father who planned salvation for us. And from the Lord Jesus Christ, who accomplished that salvation for us. Over and over again, we're reminded of the source of grace and peace. It comes from Yahweh, our God, as a free, undeserved gift. Ephesians chapter 2, verses 8 to 10. We, we read it often. We're going to read it again. In this context, for by grace you have been saved through faith, and that not of yourselves. It is the gift of God, not of works. In other words, not earned, not deserved, lest anyone should boast. For we are his workmanship, created in Christ Jesus for good works, which God prepared beforehand that we should walk in them. Because of his grace, he makes it possible for us to do and to accomplish good works that bring him glory. Okay, but what about what about peace? He says grace and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. Of the two terms, peace is the one I think that we Gentile Christians often move past too quickly. We probably assume, and I know we're often taught, 
that they're primarily talking about the peace that we have with God through salvation and the peace that we have with one another through the gospel. And both of these are so important. Peace with God. I think about that personally and it blows me away. Because I chose to make him my enemy. I cracked nasty jokes about him on the cross. I was a blasphemer. And we have peace with each other, or we should, because what Christ did brought us into the family of God. And how many times in the Epistles are we commanded to be at peace with one another. Both of those are important biblical truths, but we miss something substantial if we stop here. We need to remember the Jews. The apostles were Jews, and the word peace meant a lot more to Jews, like the apostles, a lot more than just, well, we're not against God or we're not fighting with one another anymore. The word peace in these greetings of these letters is the Greek version of the Hebrew word shalom. And shalom is a massive concept that has so much hope tied to it. Especially in the Old Testament. God's shalom is one of the main themes of the Old Testament. The Israelites were redeemed as God's people through his covenant receiving Yahweh's hased, which is what we would call agape, the covenantal love between God and his people, so that they could be a holy nation, a family, and worship God, also that they might experience and share God's Shalom. What is shalom? It's hard to define it, but let's try with an everything as it should be peace. Everything as it should be. A peace that has nothing out of place. Nothing is wrong. Everything, every relationship, everything is right. The world has never experienced that since the fall. Everything as it should be, peace. You see, what was lost at the fall was shalom. And the final restoration of all things 
is not just a return to God, but it's a return to Shalom. When the apostles, therefore, wrote, Peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ, we should think they were merely referring to being okay with God and not fighting with each other. These Jewish followers of Christ were saying that here in Christ is finally shalom. Consider that. Consider that as we read Jesus' words in that upper room discourse before he was arrested. Remember when the apostles were all concerned because he said he was going away and all of that. He said, peace, I leave with you. My peace, I give to you. Not as the world gives, do I give to you. Let not your heart be troubled, neither let it be afraid. Shalom. I leave with you, my shalom I give to you, is what Jesus was telling them. When Paul writes that Jesus himself is our peace, in Ephesians chapter 2 verse 14, just a few verses after what we just read, he's saying that this Jesus, this Israelite's Messiah, and now also the Gentiles, is the long-hoped-for shalom, the everything-as-it-should-be peace. I wish I could have found, I tried, a copy of the song that many of us sang, especially years ago, Peace give I to you. Not as the world gives, give I to you. But my peace give I to you. Those are Jesus' words. And it's a beautiful chorus. It adds other words as, along with that, but the primary one is peace. It goes on and says hope and love and so forth. But even, even that, that's not all why the apostles might have used peace. Not only did the Jews of the day respond to that word, that buzzword, peace, but the Gentiles of that time did as well. You see, at that time, they were living under the Roman Empire. And the Roman Empire, many of us don't, remember this or study this, but the Roman Empire was all about the Pax Romana. That's Latin for the Roman peace. It was very, very important that when Rome went in and conquered, that they brought peace to the place and the people where they conquered. Now, they brought it in by extreme violence, 
so it's not anyway a parallel. But once they were in control, they maintained rigorously peace, meaning you don't rebel against Rome. You be good. <laughs> you don't bring violence to this society. And they had soldiers all over the place to make sure that that's what happened. Rome proclaimed that its dominance was the greatest, most peace-giving rule ever. So the apostles then were not only insinuating that peace from the Lord Jesus Christ was the true shalom, but the true Lord Jesus' peace was a far greater, truer, more permanent, more pervasive peace than any Caesar could have brought with his Pax Romana. Now to summarize, the Apostles' grace and peace greeting is full of theological brilliance and power. But even more so, it was and it is a perfect opening summary and a reminder of the Christian faith itself. Again, Christianity in a nutshell. Christianity is all about grace. We are saved by grace alone, through faith alone, and all of history and redemption is to the praise of the glory of God's grace. Christianity also is the fulfillment of the shalom, Old Testament peace. The longed-for shalom comes to fruition and it is experienced now and forevermore in the person of Jesus Christ, in the gospel, and on into eternity. And this peace is greater than any pox, the Roman Empire, or any country including ours can offer. And where does this grace and peace come from? Remember the phrase again and again, 18 times, grace to you and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. By the way, when Paul writes to his two personal letters to Timothy and one to Titus, what we call the pastoral letters, he adds mercy. Grace and mercy and peace. They come from God the Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. Only from God the Father and only through the accomplishments of the Son do we have grace and peace.
And folks, I don't want to forget this or neglect this. Along with these broader applications, we shouldn't neglect the wonderful, very personal application that we are given in God's peace, the peace of God. We read about it often. We use it often in counseling. We use it often in our own prayers. Philippians 4, verses 6 and 7, and yes, on into 8. It says, be anxious, or don't worry about anything. Be anxious for nothing. But in everything by prayer and supplication, with thanksgiving, let your requests be made known to God. And listen, and the peace, the peace of God, which surpasses all understanding, will guard your hearts and minds through Christ Jesus. You need to take that seriously. We are given the option to put aside worry and anxiousness, anxiety, actually to take them to the cross of our Lord and to leave them there by choosing to pray, make supplication and thanksgiving as we bring our requests, our petitions, our concerns to God. Then his wonderful peace, that peace that we can't really explain, but that we know is with us, that peace from God, he uses to guard, think about it, to guard our hearts and our minds, our emotions, our concerns, our thoughts, our ideas, to guard them, to protect them. I want you to think spiritual warfare here. The enemy is attacking our hearts and our minds. Maybe you've noticed that increasing a bit lately. So God will guard them for us through Christ Jesus, who is our peace, who is our shalom. Okay, we can sum up Christianity accurately and succinctly by saying it is shalom through grace, through the Lord Jesus Christ. This, I believe, the apostles knew very well. And so out of all the Christian terms they could have used, love, mercy, glory, faith, justice, hope, and so on, they chose those two terms, grace and peace, very carefully. And may we always praise our God for his grace 
and for his shalom, his peace, that we have been given. It's ours. We've received it because of our Lord Jesus Christ. And Father, we do thank you and we do praise you. Father, grace is a a unique truth, a unique characteristic of our faith. It is a unique characteristic of you, our God. There is no other of all the false deities mankind has concocted over history. None, none are grace. None are gracious. We are so blessed and we thank you. And we praise you because it is by your grace and only by your grace that we are able to enter your kingdom that we are able to enter your family, that we are able to say all of our sins, and they are many, have been forgiven, have been washed away, have been sent to the bottom of the sea. And your word says in the new creation there will be no sea. That's how far our sins are sent away from us because of your grace. Father, we thank you and we praise you. And Lord, I pray that we are ever more conscious of that wonderful truth that we walk we live every moment of every day with you inside of us, with you alongside of us because of your grace, because you've chosen to love us and to grant us this grace that we don't and could never deserve. Lord, it'll be eternity, and we still won't have an answer to that question that we all ask, why? Why do you love us so? Why do you give us your grace? The only answer, and it really is not an answer, but it's because it's who you are. It's because you choose to. And we're blessed to be the recipients. And if we read your word aright, it is your desire that every human you have created, not just some special little group, but every human you've created, you desire to receive your grace, to receive that gift of faith by grace, 
and to be saved. Why you have chosen to allow some to reject you? Again, we don't know, but I believe, Lord, is because you don't want any robots in heaven. You want only people who have received your grace and who have therefore chosen to love you and to join your family, to submit to you as our wonderful, loving God. And it's all because of grace. Father, we thank you in Jesus' name. Amen.